We are all motivated by meaning, which is why the reInvent podcast aims to bring you a wide range of relevant information, focusing on all aspects of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. The objective of this show is to pick the minds of some of the most interesting people, all with their own stories of personal transformation, so that you can make the changes towards a more meaningful, healthier, and happier life. My name is Nikki Robertson. I'm a clinical nutritionist, NLP practitioner, and founder of reInvent Health. In part two of The Anatomy of Being Human with Dr. Sandeep Buddha, we explore quieting the mind and understanding the four forms of yoga. Okay, so just to recap in a minute or two, I mean, the last time we spoke, we spoke about uh, the dissection of the components of a human being or the anatomy of a human being, and we defined what body was, physical body. Um, it, that's your organs of action and your senses where you perceive the world. And then we said as human beings, we have a second equipment called the mind, which is the seat of emotions. And that's the feeler, where we feel joy, sorrow, agitation, anger, fear, uh, anxiety, all of that. Yes. And then there's a third component, which is often not known and ignored. It's actually the component that makes us truly human. And that's the intellect. It's the third equipment of the human being. And we said that is the, uh, the thinking part of our equipment. It uh, can watch the mind. It can regulate the mind. And there's two parts to the intellect. There's the gross intellect, which is the thinker, which thinks of the world. So it solves problems in the world. That's where scientists and everyone think about things and do things. But there's also another part to the intellect, which is the subtle intellect. It's the contemplator. It's that part of us, which like in this COVID crisis, everyone is asking, is there a bigger purpose to life? Is there something more than just this earthly life? And that's the spiritual uh, part of us, the contemplator that thinks of the thoughts of something transcendental. And I also said that the human being is made up of material components, so matter and spirit. And for that chapter, we left the spirit part out. But now as we get into yoga and meditation, it might be useful uh, to talk about what we mean by spirit. So you have body, mind, intellect. Intellect is the Gross intellect, which uh, deals with the world and thinking of the world and watching the mind. But there's the subtle intellect, which contemplates something more than just what we know. So that's just a quick recap of uh, um, that last uh, chat we had. Yes. So, <clears throat> so it's good to know this anatomy because when we talk about yoga and meditation and these kind of um, concepts become... Uh, more uh, prominent during times of crisis or the questions about them become uh, more prominent. But I think it's useful to go a little deeply into the true understanding of yoga and meditation. The words are very in vogue and they have been for many years now, especially in Western culture, where people find themselves very stressed. There's a lot of uh, desire followed by unfulfilled desires followed by agitation. There's a lot of dejection. There's a lot of divorce. There's a lot of work stress. And then people have tried all the prescriptions for the body. So dieting, supplements, pills, taking medications for chronic diseases. And then when these things fail to assist us in those um, uh, stressful environments, 
then you hear about a practice of someone saying yoga is helpful or you must try meditation as a practice or you should go to this guy's seminar and he'll teach you how to meditate and everybody gets this excitement that if i do this new practice that's going to be the answer but what isn't often realized is that when you look at these things as a simplistic practice as we did looking at our practice of eating healthier practice of an exercise program we always fall short so perhaps if we understand yoga and meditation more deeply we do it correctly then it will take us to that thing we're looking for so yes. here's the next question is why do we want to do yoga and meditation why do we want better diets why do we and the common answer to all of that is every human being if i had to have a room full of a thousand human beings right now and ask them do any of you want to feel sorrow or suffer and the common answer will be no nobody wakes up saying i want to suffer everybody wants peace bliss and contentment and they want to feel a sense of vastness a feeling of infinity they want to feel stable and strong and self sufficient in the pursuit of all of these things we've tried various things and they've often fallen short so the question is why do we want to do yoga and meditation is because we want that stability we want that contentment and those concepts are familiar to us you feel you know there's this there's this ethereal air i want to breathe i want to feel lighter it's the feeling you get when you walk in a forest or on a high mountain top or see the himalayas for the first time but what you're looking for is even more than that so that's why we want yoga and meditation but let's understand it now by going into the definitions of those two right so yoga is a word that's derived from a sanskrit word called yuj so yoga is derived from the word yuj and the meaning of yuj is union with or to join with so yoga means to join with and the question becomes with what and the answer to that is it is a science that was developed to assist in us joining with that infinite principle our eternal peace bliss that stability that uh, one without the other so the word yoga is derived from yuj and it means to join with and interestingly niki it's the eastern or sanskrit equivalent of the word religion because when you look at the latin root of religion it comes from two components re means uh, again and legion comes from ligare or ligand which means to join or union with so yeah. when you got re and to join with you meaning religion means to rejoin or uh, attain union with again it's the same as the sanskrit so religion is the western word for yoga actually right, right. so it's nice to understand that because yoga is not what you see in the studio which is just the physical practice that physical practice is one component of the complete science you see and it alone will not take you to the highest state it can be an important state depending on where you are and this is how i will associate it to body mind and intellect so yoga means to join with the higher nature there's a science behind it now how do we understand the deeper science so 
most people will be familiar with the physical yoga practices in the various schools of physical yoga practices. And you would have heard of things like Ashtanga yoga or Iyenga yoga, um, Hatha yoga, and various combinations and permutations of them depending where you go. And then remember, uh, modern schools of thought have hijacked a lot of these ancient schools and then put their own variations, which uh, make them a bit silly if they're not done with the original intention in mind, which is union with the higher. And I'm saying that because I read articles of people doing something called beer yoga, where you try and yeah. maintain a physical pose while you're holding your beer glass and you take sips in between. Okay. Now, that is not true yoga practice. That is an entertainment. It is, uh, you know, you, have, you may have a short-lived feeling of niceness, partly due to being a bit drunk, perhaps, and then, you know, you've done some stretches. So that's not true yoga. Now, the other established schools like Iyengar, perhaps, and Ashtanga were developed more recently in the past 100 years, I would say by great masters who developed the physical science. But you must remember, they got the core science from more ancient texts. And yoga is described actually thousands of years ago in the Vedas, actually. Um, and there are more components to it. So I'll come back to the physical yoga as we know it today and show you how it fits in and what those practices are. But what I want to talk about is in relation to the three components of the human being, body, mind, and intellect. There are three other parts in yoga. And the Sanskrit words for those three yogas is karma, bhakti, and jnana yoga. So you've got karma yoga, bhakti yoga, yoga, and jnana yoga. And the translation of those Sanskrit words, karma yoga is the yoga of action. Bhakti yoga in English is the yoga of devotion. And jnana yoga, the third one, is the yoga of knowledge or intellection, right? So you've got these other three schools of yoga as well. Now, what do they mean? So let's take the first one, karma yoga, the yoga of action. You see, if you understand the components of the human being, you get people that are very physically orientated, they're physical beings. They like action in the world. They're more physically orientated. They like the muscles and all of that. They're very dynamic. They do a lot of things with a, a, a frenzy in the world. Those people like action. So if you are predominantly identified physically, then yoga of action becomes, or karma yoga becomes a predominant way that you should practice. Now, it's beyond the scope of this talk to go through each one in detail, but very briefly, um, karma yoga, the yoga of action, is about acting in the world, right? But the nature of your action must be towards the higher. See, if yoga is union with the higher, you can act in the world either selfishly, unselfishly, or selflessly. So if you go to work, for example, this is why a lot of people say you can meditate in the world while you're doing work, while you're walking, or you can sit in a posture. But I'll get to that now. If you are going to work and you are actioning or acting unselfishly towards selfless, that is not with just a personal uh, gain in mind, then you are practicing the yoga of action. And 
you need to go through the study of the yoga of action quite deeply to understand how it is. So it comes down to knowing yourself, your nature, the nature of your mind, all of that. And whether I'm more physical, you study the yoga of action. And while you're working in the world, you become uh, a yogi, a karma yogi. So if you're a policeman, you do police work, but you're doing it for the greater good. But your thought is on exhausting all this action to serve a greater goal. That's the yoga of action. But if you're thinking of you and what I can gain from it while you're doing that action, you will become disturbed in your mind. You'll create more desires, more thoughts, more agitations. And when you've got more thoughts, desires, and agitations through selfish action, then your mind is not calm. And if your mind is not calm, you will not become withdrawn and introverted and you will not be capable of meditation. The second form of yoga that I mentioned is devotional yoga, the yoga of devotion, right? So the yoga of devotion or bhakti yoga is for people that are more emotional in their nature. So remember I said body, mind is the feeler, the thinker, the person that feels emotions a lot. These are the people that, you know, they're they more like, I like this guy, I don't like that person because she said that. And, you know, if she talks like this, then it's nice. If she doesn't talk like that. then So these people get caught in emotions a lot and they're very sensitive and emotional. So that kind of person needs a higher proportion of devotional yoga. And that is the feeling of something higher, which can be inculcated through correct, maybe music. So you'll see like, even now recently, um, one of the tenors was outside, was it uh, Bocelli, I think, outside one of the churches in Italy yeah. uh, doing his thing. But when you listen to that kind of music, there's something of a feeling of something higher involved. And especially emotional people will relate to that. Very physical people will say, oh, this is boring. Did you get what I'm saying? So um, devotion is inculcated through music in a church, a choir, the uh, the Eastern people do bhajans in satsang, so they sing together with nice little drum and, uh, and uh, bells, and then there's invocations of God that have a nice rhythm and hymn to them, you know? So these are the types of things like incense and all of that create nice environments or satsang, but usually it's a feeling of something higher, being in nature, uh, seeing the Himalayas or watching a beautiful sunrise, inculcate a feeling of something higher. It's love for the higher. There is devotional yoga. So a smart person who's more emotional and understands this will incorporate a lot more devotional practices into their day. So actually, you can go to work, come back, but I'm going to take a walk in nature or surround myself with devotional music. And that is devotional yoga, you see? So it's, it's incorporated into your life. Then the uh, third one is jnana yoga or um, it's spelled J-N-A-N-A, J-N-A-N-A uh, in, um, in English, uh, is intellectual yoga. And intellectual yoga or uh, yoga of knowledge is for the intellectual introvert. So someone who's exhausted the actions in life, they've worked, they've seen the world, they uh, a little more logical thinker and objective, they're less disturbed by emotions and that sort of thing. And they've gone introverted. They've realized that the world is not going to give me answers. And I want to understand higher knowledge. So this person spends most of their time studying 
the knowledge of the higher truths of life, how I'm talking to you. So they would have studied the science of yoga. They would have studied the science of meditation. They would have studied the constituents of the human body. They would have studied the laws of cause and effect. Uh, they would have studied maybe even the entire Vedanta or Veda discourse or gone into Buddhism and that sort of So they introvert. Now, when you understand it this way, you have yoga uh, of action, you have the yoga of emotion, and you have the yoga of intellection. Then you have the physical yoga practices that we know of today, which actually is only a minute component. In fact, the physical yoga practices in the past were just prescribed to keep the body in a healthy physical state so that you could use the body for the other three yogas, which is karma, bhakti, jnana, action, devotion, and intellection. For example, I'm practicing the yoga, karma yoga or yoga of action as a protector of the realm, as a police or a warrior, a policeman or a warrior, right? And to do that, I need to maintain my physical body really well. And I don't want to be aware of aches and pains and imbalance issues and my weight can't be high because, uh, you know, it will be an impediment to my uh, work, which serves the nation. So then that person would do some physical yoga practices every morning to maintain the body. And the person who's doing devotional yoga or intellectual yoga, the intellectual guy needs to sit at his desk and study a lot. So with that, he needs to do physical yoga exercises for his neck and his lower back, and then make sure the thighs are strong, and make sure it doesn't get diseases and aches and pains. Does it make sense, Nikki, how it used to fit in? Right? So, you know, people used to weave this into their lives um, as part of a narrative of life for joining with the higher. These were not separate practices, like I'm just going to do life as I please, and then I'll do yoga in the morning to feel better. Yeah, does it, it make sense? It does. It yeah. seems like it's, it's living with intention. Um, were you engaging the intellect, the logic, and the physical body with the intention of the inter or recognizing the interconnectedness of everything? Yeah, yeah. And proportion it according to your nature. See, no two people are alike. So yeah. the intellectual guy will need more intellectual yoga, very little physical yoga. You see? So... I think the mistake that happens today is we'll join, a, for example, a yoga school, right? Now, that's why I said you must always be aware of what your intention is when you do these things. If you go into any practice, a practice is something you do for a short time repeatedly till it has a result. So I may be going to yoga to lose weight. I may be going to yoga to look good. I may be going to yoga to be part of a cool club. I may be going to yoga because I want peace of mind, a higher goal. I may be going to yoga because I truly uh, want physical well-being so I can pursue the other three for the higher goals. So whatever your reason is, your result is going to be dependent on the intention behind it. So that's why I say to people often, you know, if you're going to do physical yoga and expect that that only is going to give you your higher goal, you'll get neutralized. So if you do yoga properly or the physical yoga practices like you do in the studios for six months or a year you'll be very good physically i mean you'll have toned muscles you have a six-pack you'll be flexible maybe you'll be able to bend and stretch and you'll have some relative physical well-being you'll maybe breathe better feel a bit better but you haven't resolved your mental agitations so maybe i'll take it one step further is that 
you know, there's this high goal of achieving the infinite on the one end. And then here's we are as mortals on the physical realm with all our physical issues. Now, between us and that high goal, there's something blocking that infinite principle that we want to achieve, that complete bliss and all of that. And that is at the mind level. Is all our thoughts, our desires that we carry as a burden on us. And if our desires are not fulfilled, we agitate it, we get angry, we get greedy, we get envious. So actually the yogas are prescribed for us to unburden ourselves of the bulk of desires that we carry. Because the goal is to become meditative. Now, the definition of meditation, if you take the previous definitions I've given, the definition of meditation according to the science that has been written thousands of years ago is a mind, and remember I said the mind is the seat of all our thoughts, and we all have thousands if not millions of thoughts and desires flying around in our minds all the time. So the definition of meditation is a mind that is governed to a point of single-pointed thought through a very strong intellect. Remember I said we are body, we are mind, we are intellect. Now, or those are our equipments. Now the mind houses all the thoughts. And the thoughts are racing in every direction. No direction, no dimension. I need to get to school. I need to get the kids there. I need to have this. We need to make so much money this month. I need to have a six-pack. I need to lose weight. You see? Now, if we have so many thoughts floating around, and then we try to sit in a meditative posture, and quieten the mind, you're going to suppress all those thoughts and desires, right? And if you temporarily do that, you're going to feel awesome. This is why a lot of these apps and other podcasts we've heard will say, sit quietly, breathe, and watch your mind, and they say, and watch the feelings that come up. So you may feel fear, you may feel anxiety, you may feel joy or something come up, and watch these thoughts and watch them go by. Now, that will help temporarily, but see, Nikki, if you haven't resolved the bulk of your desires in life, right, all you're doing for that half an hour or 45 minutes that you're sitting is you're suppressing those thoughts. They haven't gone away. You're suppressing them. And when you wake up from that meditative practice has been uh, recently traditionally exp uh, expounded, um, you feel good because you've quietened your mind for a few minutes or half an hour. but after a while, all those desires come back with a vengeance. And the next day you find, damn, I'm agitated again. I'm irritated. So that's why these great scientists of the inner constitution of the human being, uh, the so-called gurus of the past or sages of the past, develop these three other yogas, devotion, uh, action, and intellection. They said, if you can weave these three into your life, you will unburden most of your desires you'll get rid of your material desires you will have work and you'll be regulated and you'll have less stress with that you will be able to govern your emotions and thoughts better and you've exhausted most of that and now you become introverted and as you practice those three yogas in life with a bit of the physical training as we traditionally know it so you can call that the fourth part of it uh, hatha type of yoga if you want then over time, your mind becomes quieter, less thoughts, and you've unburdened a lot of the bulk desires, and you find you become withdrawn. And later, you're able to concentrate better. 
the definition of the word concentrate is to pay attention to the task at hand. Yeah. When you can concentrate, you'll see that you start becoming meditative automatically. Does it make sense? So now you'll be walking around and you look and you say, actually, my mind's quite empty. There's not a lot of thoughts here. Yeah. I can actually sit still like a goat in the field and not feel an impulse to go somewhere. And that's when you can start practicing more proper meditation, where you sit down then in the lotus position with your head uh, straight up, your spine must be erect. You put your hands folded in front of you on your lap with the fingers intertwined, you know, you rest and you breathe uh, quietly. And as you're sitting there, you already don't have a lot of thoughts in your mind, right? And then we said the definition of meditation is a mind that's governed to single-pointed thought by your intellect, that logical center. So now you sit there and you watch your mind. And one or two thoughts may trickle in there. And all you do is you use your intellect to discard that thought. Don't give it any momentum. Don't give it any attention. And with that practice, you'll get to a point of single-pointed thought. And you'll see some practitioners who get to that very high level sometimes use rosary beads you know and rosary beads or a chant are simply that single thought that you're aiming for so every bead you chant the word om or you may have some recitation or you don't need the beads and all you do is you chant the word om which is your only thought you see right so now you're getting to a meditative state you're sitting comfortably, you're not aware of the body because you've done physical yoga for years and the body's not aching and paining and you can sit in that position. You've done karma yoga through your service in the world and your thoughts don't go to acquiring and enjoying and I need to earn a living and you know, you've got enough, you're stable, it doesn't have to be too much, it's just enough. So the thoughts don't go there. I've got bills to pay your debt to settle. Emotionally, you're more settled because you've done bhakti yoga or devotional yoga and you're feeling inspired most of the time and you're not anxious irritable up and down you know so you calm there and intellectually you're now strong enough to watch the mind and the intellectual knowledge is there to understand what meditation is and now you're sitting there in that position the mind is calm thoughts are reduced intellects watching the mind and you're going with this process where the only thought in your mind is that one word or one chant Om, Om, Om. And at each stage, you're thinking about that union with something beyond these material vestures, that spirit, uh, whether you call it Holy Spirit or soul or Atman or Brahman, which is in the Vedic sciences. They're all alluding to something transcendental, which our senses cannot know. You want to slip into that eternity. So how does that happen? Now, you remember, as long as we have desires and thoughts, we're still in the world. But when you become meditative, you only have one thought, which is the chant. But what's between the, the chant and the next chant is a complete silence where you are thoughtless. And it's in that space that if we are really advanced in our practice, the, that practitioner, that yogi will slip into that space. And it's in that space where you experience what some people call uh, nirvana or samadhi they they get into a very high infinite sort of uh, god realization that complete bliss and actually if you slip into that in the correct way 
they say there's no coming back. And that's probably the Buddha state or the Christ state, you see. But, you know, some people will then say, well, that sounds like it's only for a few people. That's not true. To the degree we get the yogas incorporated into our life and, and weave them in with uh, a good, sensible way of doing it, to that degree, we will become calmer, more lighter, more ethereal. And actually, if you've been doing, doing that in the past already, then today with this COVID crisis and all of that, you deal with it in a much easier way. If you've never done that, you can't suddenly today just force meditation on yourself. You'll have to do a few things. So maybe for a couple of days, start getting into just a simple routine at home. Wake up early, do some action during the day, just have a routine to serve your family, read a few higher books or some philosophy uh, early in the morning, reflect on these things in the evening. You'll find after three or four days, your mind is a bit calmer. Actually, to get to a meditative state, I mean, my guru always tells me, he's a 93-year-old philosopher, he says, none of you are really capable of it right now. It's going to take some work, you know? Mm -hmm. So what you do today and in the future then uh, will become your future meditative state. And after a while, you'll find that while you're doing your work and everything, you're so focused on the transcendental and higher that the work becomes an ease, a joy, you know? Uh, it's like watching a movie you experience the waves of emotion, but you don't get caught in them because you focused on this union with the yoga, with something higher, something transcendental, which is in all of us. You see, that's the common principle. That's the thing that we can identify with, with everyone if we can see it. But we can only see it to the degree we've reduced our desires and thoughts. And the yogas are there to help us reduce desire to settle the mind and get to that very high state. Does yeah. it make sense? Yeah. Yeah. The thing mm. that really sort of culm culminates mm. for me listening to you is, is watching the mind and to yeah. able to step back and watch ourselves thinking and not buy into the thoughts, but wonder why those thoughts yeah. are there is, is, a, exactly. is a lovely thing to yeah. contemplate. Yeah. If I can just put that idea simple and practically, you see, the reason I went into the anatomy and the equipment of the human being is you've got to understand the nature of the mind. That's where our big work has to be done. The nature of the mind is that it has a lot of thoughts and desires. And these thoughts and desires have no direction and no dimension. They go all over. So even now, if say someone is listening to this podcast, right? They're sitting in their rooms, they're listening to the podcast, but the mind can drift to, oh, I wish I was uh, on a beach in Mauritius somewhere. Do you see? So the thought takes you away and you lose focus and concentration here, right? And uh, in some of the ancient books, they liken the mind and its thoughts and desires to that of a monkey, you know? They say, like the, like a, yeah, the mind is a monkey mind because mm -hmm. it's constantly moving from object to object like a monkey. So it wants to go from work to the movies and from the movies on the weekend to a restaurant. And then it wants to go see the grandchildren and it wants to do this. And it feels that every time it does that, it's going to be happy. And then even when you achieve the object of your movement, so I at, I'm at the restaurant, now I'm sitting still and the food is being delivered and I could focus and enjoy this experience. But then your mind goes to worry of the past and anxiety of the future, the uncertainty. So it says, 
oh, why did that one tell me that yesterday? And, you know, I'm agitated by that. And, oh, what's going to happen in a week from now? Is this virus going to come to South Africa and the uncertainty of it, you know? So that's the mind. But if you've got the yogas in there, it will govern the mind, much like the banks of a river directing the water flow. If there's no strong banks to the river, the water will flood the plains and destroy everything. That's what our thoughts and desires do. But if you've got these three yogas and you understand them and you apply them in your life, they help you direct the thoughts in one direction, ultimately to that infinite bliss that we're all looking for. Um, but it's a gradual process, you know, like tributaries yeah. always ending up in the ocean, the idea. Yeah. That's why it's called a practice because you can't go buy the yoga pants and get the results. You've got to actually do the work and you've got to do it for a long time and you've got to be, yeah. I suppose you've got to commit to it and you've got to be consistent with anything in life to, to reap the reward. Yeah. Practice. So, yeah, and even practice, you can take it a step further and say, weave it into life. You see, my guru always said to us that living is an art and a skill. And just like a musical instrument, we have to learn to play it. And for us as human beings, the learning is the art of thinking, how to manage the mind. This is the, the, it's simply, uh, very simply put. The philosopher Alan Watts, he put it quite beautifully. He says, you know, when we play a musical instrument like a piano, we um, don't say we're working on it or it's, uh, we're stressing with it. We're, if you know how to play the musical instrument, you say, I'm playing the instrument, correct? So yes. to be able to play the instrument, you needed a teacher to teach you how to play it. You needed to learn the theory, and then you needed to have the practice, and then that metamorphoses into wisdom and then experience, you see? So uh, a good musical instrument player or piano player is experienced, is knowledgeable, and is wise in that art, right? And when they play the instrument, Nikki, they're loving every moment of it. Every note is a joy. And you never play a musical instrument with the goal in mind that I want to finish it. It's every moment that presence that's enjoyable. You know, the, the point of music is the music in itself. The point yeah. of dance is the yeah. dance in itself. It's not the end of the dance. So Ellen Watts says, life ought to be like that. And, and my guru also said, it's the art and skill of living. The question is then, we have never learned the art and the skill of living through this kind of science. We've been following herd mentality according to cultural memes and mental patterns based on judgments, based on fear of missing out, based on what the herd thinks is good for you. So there's no self-sufficiency. There's no critical thinking. There's no even knowledge that that is possible. So if we are to develop this art of life and enjoy the moment for what it is and ultimately surrender into the infinite bliss, then we need the knowledge of it. We need a teacher to teach us. You know, that's what they call the... Uh, student preceptor relationship uh, the students and the guru uh, guru shiksha they call it and that relationship is lost in modern society we have teachers of things you know our lecturers in university and teachers in school teach us about science mathematics today what's very prominent is economics how to make money in this kind of world but these are all 
outward-directed knowledge basins that teach us about the objective world of doership, you see. But there isn't the pervasive availability of the science of the subjective knowledge of your inner constitution, which is what these yoga sciences are all about. Does that make more sense now? Right. So very correct i mean it's about the mind we need to learn to play and be in the moment and experience that joy actually you'll see it in children you know where they're just in the moment there's no ego you know so everybody's attracted to children the other people that people are attracted to is the very high souls who've reduced the mind to almost no thought or are thoughtless so people were attracted to christ and buddha these days the dalai lama and they always described as youthful and childlike and loving and you know there's laughter in them and that sort of thing so yeah. is and and those of us we can be even young like 30 years old but if we're carrying a lot of ego and thoughts and desires and agitations and selfishness in us do not those people appear to us as dark and heavy burden around them and they seem to age faster uh, physically as well you, you yeah. see that so yeah, it's very interesting when we start looking at the nature of the mind and how it reflects in the body um, and actually if we do more of the work on that third equipment that thing that uh, uh, buddhi or intellect the sanskrit word is buddhi if we develop that through the sciences of the inner constitution that's the most powerful thing. But, and then obviously apply the balm for the mind and the body as well uh, as, as part of the prescription. Yes. Yeah. So again, Good. we've got lots of food for thought here. And the, the metaphor mm -hmm. that comes up very much for me while listening to you is that we seem to be born with a bucket of pebbles. And we've got a chance to offload these pebbles as we go through life or, or load up more and then just have a bigger burden to deal with as we go through so yeah um there's so much to you hit the nail on the head with that analogy i must say um it is true you see when we're born you already have inherent baggage of desires that's why you'll see with babies as well you can have three children born to the same parent same household but very early in their lives you see slightly different personality patterns within the first few months you'll see it so they're all born with those desires and you're right the purpose of life, actually to be born a human, is a huge privilege because it's only in this form as a human that we have the ability of self-effort to get rid of those desires, those pebbles, as you say. But what we end up doing is acquiring more desires on top of the originals that we're born with through patterns, you see. So we go and take on more baggage in life and we get caught uh, more and more into it. So yeah. there's a beautiful way of putting it is that, yes, the, uh, only as a human do we have self-effort and we can go into this uh, science of the inner uh, journey. Um, other species can't do that. You know, if you're a tiger, you just have to be ferocious and be a carnivore. Even in times of scarcity, you, the tiger has no choice to become a vegetarian. The lamb is a herbivore. It's got no choice. But a human can stay materialistic, animalistic, and mundane with lower desires or can rise to the highest infinity, bliss. But the self-effort and the desire to want that infinity must be there. And then you've got to do the work of yoga of action, yoga of devotion, yoga of intellection, and a little bit of physical yoga practices to keep the body okay. 
And over time, you will get there with the right intention. I think that would uh, conclude it quite nicely. That would be a great way to sum this up and let us contemplate all this wisdom. And then um, that's that's just uh, new eyes to to understand this, the self-reflection and why we do things our intention behind.